if I haven't gotten to meet you yet, uh, welcome. My name is Aaron. I'm one of our pastors and preachers here at the Trails, and it's great to be able to gather and, uh, and open up God's Word with you again this week. Uh, now, if you are newer around the Trails, maybe it's one of your first times with us, um, or, or maybe uh, first times in a while, maybe you've been camping because we've had great weather, uh, and you're back. Welcome. Uh, we are thankful to have you uh, joining with us today as we're continuing to walk through our study of the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. Uh, and we've been studying this book of Exodus for about, oh, ever since October. So I need to turn that a little bit so I can see it, so I make sure that you know what you're seeing as well. Uh, we've been studying it uh, since uh, around October, and as we've been doing so, we've been seeing some really vital things about who God is and specifically how he provides for his people. And so today, uh, you are joining us as we are going to be in chapters or big, bold numbers, uh, 26 and 27 in the book of Exodus. So if you want to open up either on your phone or uh, old school analog version, uh, that would be great. That's where we're going to be. Um, and the sermon today, we're calling The King Who Is Holy. And you'll see why as we uh, walk through our time together. And, and if you are newer as well to the book of Exodus or maybe have been with us and, and maybe you are trying to grasp exactly how this book fits together, it does so in three major broad brush strokes. Three brush strokes. So the very first one is uh, Exodus 1 to 18, Exodus chapters 1 to 18. And it's here where we saw how God single-handedly saves the Israelites according to his promise in Genesis 15 as they exited out of Egypt. That's why the book is called Exodus. Uh, they exit slavery from Egypt as God rescued and ransomed them by his strong arm. And then in the second stroke, we saw how God gave this newly liberated people some rules to govern them. We saw it in Exodus chapter 19, verse 24. And we talked about how God didn't crowdsource their laws, right? figure out what, what do you think is best? What do you think is best? How many people are voting for A? How many people are voting for B? That's not how God did it, but instead, God, being God, the one who created humanity, knows how life works best. And he is the one who had just ransomed and rescued them out of slavery, and so he gave them laws that were meant for their flourishing. So rules or laws for their flourishing. And we saw that in chapter 19 to 24. And we talked about in these chapters how God makes a covenant or an oath-bound relationship with Israel. Whereby, if Israel obeys God's voice and keeps the covenant, then God would bless them. Things would go really well for them. And if not, they would come under his discipline as a nation. Still, his people just under discipline, not blessing. Like children who get discipline. See what I did there? That was not business of blessing. Uh, so uh, as we said, these, these rules of God weren't given so that Israel would learn God's love, but rather as God's chosen and loved people, as those who are in the family of God, there are certain rules that they are expected to live by. So we had the Exodus, then the covenant with God, whereby they learned God's rules for how they ought to live. And then starting last week, we entered into the third main portion of this book, uh, the tabernacle is what it's called, or the tent, and that's chapters 25 uh, to 40. And it's simply referred to by the word tabernacle. So those are kind of the three main things that we saw. And in this one, the tabernacle is called so because the remaining chapters of the book of Exodus, 15 all the way to 40, refer to this tabernacle, this tent that Moses uh, was told to build by God. And uh, there wasn't really anything special about a tent 
in and of itself being built. All of Israel was living in tents at this time. They all had little portable homes that they would set up and tear down, kind of like some of you did this past weekend or have plans to do in the weeks ahead as you set up a campground and then you tear it back down. So all of Israel at this time was living in tents. And yet, as we began to see last week, this tent that God tells them to build is unlike their tents in every possible way, right? It's size, it's beauty, but also in what this tent is meant to signify, right? So as Matt taught us really beautifully last week, this tabernacle was intended by God to signify that his very presence was among his people. God, the creator and sustainer of all things, the only true and living God who's omnipresent, he's all places and all times, this God would imminently dwell in the midst of his redeemed people in a very unique and special way, in the middle of their camp. That's a wild thought if you really think about it. So so to signify this reality, God told Moses to build this tent. And as he does so, God gives really detailed instructions for what the tent is supposed to be like. And if you read through these chapters, it might even seem like painstaking detail. You ever been reading through Exodus and you're like, good night, Again, we're reading about clasps and fails and things. It's like painstaking detail. Like if you're reading that at 6 a.m. on a Monday morning over some coffee, you're like, man, I got no idea what's happening here. You know what I mean? You kind of like might speed read it because you're like, I don't know. I'm not building a tent. So I don't know. God, God bless these people, but I, I'm not doing that. And yet, as we read through the book of Exodus, we see that these instructions don't don't come once, but actually come twice. So if you are doing your Bible reading, you read it on like Monday, but then on Thursday, you're right back in it again. And you're like, I'm pretty sure I read this on Monday. What is happening? And we see that these come twice, which seems confusing. Like, I read that, I'm reading it again. What is going on? And so it's important to understand the actual structure of this tabernacle section, sections 25 to 40, where we see kind of the overall picture. So in chapter 25 to 31, the overall picture is God gives the plan for building the tabernacle. Then chapter 32 to 34, Israel rebels against God. And then in chapter 35 to 40, we see the tabernacle actually being built according to all the specifications that God laid out. So the refrain in those last couple of chapters goes like this. Everything that God told them to build, they did exactly as God prescribed. And as we began to see last week, though God's tent is a portable, movable tent, just like the ones that the Israelites are living in, what we see is that God's tent is nothing like their tents. It is much more beautiful and glorious than theirs. In fact, as we'll see in our study today, with all the gold and the fancy fabrics in God's tent, this is much more like the tent of a king, a king who is holy than a tent that belongs to the common Israelites. And typically when we gather together like this on a Sunday uh, and, and have our sermons, our sermons primarily have us walking kind of verse by verse, line by line through whatever section of the Bible that we're studying. And as we do, what we, what we do is we ask questions of the text and try to understand what in the world is the text saying. So the main point of our sermon is the main point of the text. This kind of preaching where we mine for gold in God's word and follow the argumentation of the text is called expositional preaching. And, and it's, it's where we exposit the text. We expose it. We bring it to light very clearly and plainly and, and see, look, see this? This is what it says. And we all say, oh, that is exactly what it says. We say, yes, this is exactly what it says. That's kind of, about, that's what expositional preaching is. And it's one way of preaching. Uh, it, it, that's one way of preaching what we call expositional sermon. Another component, though, of this preaching style is often found in what we usually do in the middle of our sermons. Right, so in the middle of our sermons, we strive to understand this passage of Scripture in view of its wider context. 
So we usually start out really small, and then we zoom out a little bit, and then we zoom way out. That's typically the flow of how our sermons go. So we zoom out a little bit and see how this text reminds us of former things we've seen in the Bible, or maybe it points to future patterns or things that we notice later on in Scripture. And so because we are walking through so much text today, and much of it has to do with items that are found in the tabernacle and in the court, the the area right outside of the tabernacle surrounding it, I thought what would be best for us is to not get too bogged down into the minutia of understanding which rings go into which couplets and how to construct the temple, not because that wouldn't be a profitable use of our time, because it would, but often in texts like this, we just don't understand how they fit into the overall picture and plans of God as they unfold throughout the Bible. And so maybe in small groups this week, you can dive in and discuss the nitty-gritty details of how everything goes together. But my aim for today is to give us, like, remember when you go get your eyes checked, there's like the big E on the eye chart, the one that, of course, you can see because it's there. That's what we're going after today. What is the big E on the eye chart of what we are supposed to see in this text? And so that we can see that this actually is profitable for you to study. Right, sometimes you're reading through God's word and you're like, oh, I don't know about this one though, man. How's that profitable? And yet I want to show you, my aim is to show you how profitable it actually is for us and how they are meant to point us to Jesus. Also, this week's sermon will kind of be like part two to last week's sermon. So if you missed Matt's sermon, go back and listen to it. It was very good. Uh, Matt labored really well, so we'd have a general overview of everything that happens in the tabernacle. I uh, was joking, I don't know if it was to Samantha or somebody this week, but it was kind of like the Magnolia Channel, like the Chip and Joanna Gaines version uh, of, of the tabernacle. We got like a view of it. Matt even had like a little diagram. I was looking at it afterwards. It was very cool. Did you actually build that? It's a kit. Oh, it's a kit, but you, you, you put it together. That's like when you bake a cake, but it came from a box. Be like, but I made it. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, so, so Matt had this Matt had this diagram, a mock-up blueprint that it, that came, so we could see the various parts of the tabernacle, how everything fit together in God's tent, the area around the tent called the court, and then it had a fence along it, so that people had to enter from the east. Uh, and in that sermon, we covered a lot of the historical importance of the tabernacle, but specifically, Matt highlighted over and over again the central storylines of the Bible that the tabernacle is meant to reveal. And it is that God has a plan to dwell in the midst of his people. And he's accomplishing that plan all the way throughout redemptive history. So that's one of the three huge things, the big E on the I chart, that this, this text is meant to reveal to us. God is inaugurating his plans of dwelling in the middle of his people, a plan that points, as Matt said so beautifully, back to Eden and to Sinai, but then forward to Jesus as God dwells in a tent, a human body like ours, and then even further on to the new Jerusalem in the book of Revelation. So Matt covered one of those three main things that this, uh, these chapters reveal to us about God and his purposes and plans to dwell in the midst of his people and how he's accomplishing that throughout redemptive history. But there are at least two other things that we see about God that we learn from the text if we have eyes to see it. And that's our goal today. You with me? Beautiful. All right, that's where, that's where we're going. So uh, before we do that, I want to pray for us one more time before we dive in that God would give us eyes to see it. Because if you see it every time for the rest of your life, when you read back through these chapters of Exodus, you'll say, I see it. Uh, but if not, you'll miss it. And you'll be like, I don't understand. Uh, and only God is the one who can give us eyes to see. So let's ask him to do that. So let me pray for us. So Father, as we are approaching your word this week, I pray that you would open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your law. God, and there are wondrous things to be seen, no doubt. 
God, we admit there is much here that we might naturally overlook or things that might go unexamined. And so I pray that you would give us eyes to see and minds to comprehend and ears that can hear. God, we pray that you would work a miracle in our hearts today as we come into your word, that we might experience your kindness and your grace as we are working through your word. Fill us, we pray, with your spirit. Help us to comprehend your love and majesty. Help us to know you more as a result of our time today. May we be convicted over various sins in our lives that we may repent of those and live lives that are holy and clean in your sight. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So what else do these chapters teach us about who God is? Well, the first one I would put before you for your consideration is that the tabernacle with the items found throughout it and even the placement of the tent in the very center of the camp of Israel is meant to demonstrate that God dwells in the midst of his people, which we talked about last week. Yes and amen. But it's also meant to underline, bold, and italicize how God alone is Israel's true king. And it's a point that we've been making throughout our study of Exodus, isn't it? It's not a brand new point in this book, but it's helpful to make this connection to see in this third section, right, the three sections. In this third section, we also see it as well. All right, so in previous sermons, we've seen how that first brushstroke, chapters 1 to 18, that the wonderful plan of God would unfold as he desires to liberate his people from slavery, right? So as God sends Moses, his spokesman, to go speak to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, on his behalf, telling Pharaoh, let my people go. It's one king making demands on another king. They are serving you illegally. I want my people back, right? And, and, and Pharaoh says, heck no, I'm not letting them go. And what happens? War breaks out, a war of kings. That's the only thing that Exodus movie got right. That's of gods and kings, but it's God the king fighting against the king, Pharaoh. And that's what God says. Pharaoh refuses, war breaks out, God unleashes judgment on Pharaoh, leading ultimately to God conquering over Pharaoh, decimating them, and then creating a covenant with this newly rescued and redeemed people in chapters 19 to 24. So God, as their king, makes an oath with them, promising them protection if they will submit to his rule over them and his laws for the kingdom. Right, this oath-bound relationship is similar to other treaties that we see from this time period made between kings and the people that they were to subjugate. So even in the vocabulary of God giving them laws to live by and promises of protection and provision, God is proving himself to be Israel's king. And now in this last section, even in the placement of the tabernacle in the smack dab middle of the camp of Israel, this placement is meant to highlight that God is their king in a physical way. And this might be new to you, but historically, what we see is that when nations were to move about in the wilderness just like this, either when they're going out to war or they're setting up camp or there's famine in the land, they're moving somewhere else, they go to a different location for whatever reason, what we see is that there was always this central tent, and it was the one in which the king resided. So the king's tent would be set up, and then his warriors or his guard would be around him, and then the less prestigious people... Right, the people like, if you get in war, you're like, oh, they can die. Uh, those people would be out there. And then the people you really don't like are on the, the very far outside. That you're like, man, I wish someone would come and attack. They knock those people off. So, so if we look at a map, actually, of the placement of the tabernacle in the midst of the camp of Israel, this is kind of what we see. See if it's there. Oh, it's not there. Dang it. I don't know where that went. I'm going to show it to you later. What, basically what it shows is that in the middle of the picture of the setup of Israel's camp in the wilderness, we see what it would have looked like. That when the entire camp of Israel was set up, the tabernacle, God's tent, is directly in the center of the camp. 
So the tribes would set up their tents as they encircled the tabernacle, the tent of their king. Now, practically, in the ancient Near East, this was really important because if any foreign invaders did come uh, around and were trying to kill the king, they'd have to get through everybody else before eventually getting to the king. So it was... They're common, it was common for protection for earthly kings, but God, however, doesn't need protection from his enemies, right? Like, how did Pharaoh make war with God? He hurt Israel, but can he, can he hurt God in any way? Uh, no. Right, so God doesn't need protection, so his camp isn't set up like that, but it's set up like this because of what it symbolized, that God was in their midst. He was their king. He was the most important one in their midst. So since Israel has no other king other than God, it's fitting that his tabernacle, his tent, would be at the very center of the camp. Thus, by this intentional placement in the midst of his people, the tabernacle stands as a symbol. It physically demonstrates and reminds Israel that God is their central monarch. He is the king of Israel to whom they must submit. So as we said last week, This tent is meant to signify that God is with them, yes, uh, and it's also meant to show that he is their true king. So God being in the center of the camp, dwelling in their midst, highlights this king motif that we've seen throughout the book of Exodus thus far. Not only that, but as we examine everything that we read from Exodus chapter 25 to 27, we see that the items themselves found in the tent demonstrate that God is the true king of Israel. If you read all those chapters, you see that all of these are kingly items, Right, so if you want to read through all of chapter 26 later on today, or if you did so coming to the gathering, because you knew we were going to be in chapter 26 and 27, you're like, well, I'm going to go ahead and read that because I want to know what the sermon's going to be about. If you already read it, then you noticed a whole lot of discussion on curtains being coupled together and loops and there are clasps, and there are a whole lot of things that make absolutely no sense to me, like nothing. Some of you, you might be really good at like sewing and putting things together. I am completely incompetent. In all of those things. So I read through this list and I'm like, you might as well be speaking some gibberish language to me. I have no earthly idea. And so maybe you're like me. And if so, if we're honest, these might be the chapters of the Bible that when we come to them on that Thursday morning Bible reading plan, you would just kind of skim over them and not really know what to do with this text at all. You know that God's word is profitable. You know that it's important for some reason, but you have no clue why. And this is why understanding the big picture of the Bible and what was being highlighted is so important. So that we don't practically detest parts of the Bible that are meant to be so precious to us. So in these verses, verses 1 to 30, might I suggest if you have your Bible and you have a pen in your hand, make a little note on the side of your Bible. Write it down. Write down. These verses are meant to highlight that this text and the items found within it is worthy of a king. The tent and all the items found within it are worthy of a king. Now, firstly, we see through the sheer size of this tent, the overall length, which was 45 feet and 15 feet high and 15 feet wide, this tent is huge. Not only that, but its structural components are built out of gold-plated wooden frames that form a skeleton over which four layers of materials are placed, indicating that the occupant of this tent is someone exceptionally special. Like, I don't know about you, uh, like if you're building a house right now, but you're probably not using gold-plated studs. You know what I mean? Like most people are never even going to see it. You're going to put some plaster up over it and stuff. Gold-plated studs, probably, probably not. Uh, this level of opulence probably isn't, isn't what you're used to. And yet here it is. So the placement of the tent and then the sheer size of it indicates someone exceedingly special that dwells within it. 
And then looking at the items in the tent demonstrate that God is the king of Israel. So we keep reading. If you want to look with me at, at uh, uh, verses 26, or chapter 26, uh, verses uh, 31 to 35. So big number 26, uh, small verses 31 to 35. What we see is that there are these curtains that are made out of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. All of those the colors of royalty and nobility. And we simply take note of the gold and the pillars and the hooks and the silver and the bases. All this shows it's not just a commoner's dwelling. This is a baller house. A rich dude lives here. It is bougie. You know what I mean? I, I, like, hey, you ever been to a bougie house and you walk in and you're like, bougie. This is just bougie. I, I remember Samantha and I, we, uh, we went to Versailles back in 2019. We went to uh, Louis XIV's house. You walk in immediately, bougie. Like the gates are gold. The gates, before you even get in, you walk in, there's paintings everywhere, fabrics that are used, all these things. You're like, a king definitely lives here. Like, I don't, I've never been to a king's house other than that one, and no king really lives there anymore. But, but if I would imagine, what is it? Like, this is it, right? This, this, the splendor, the gold, the fabrics is this lavish, extremely lavish dwelling. And that's the kind of imagery that we have here with God's tent. It is fit for a king. Thus, every ounce of opulence just demonstrates the worthiness of God. And that is part of the point. The tent is unlike the common tent of the Israelites. This is the tent of their king. This is God's tent where he will come and meet with his people. And now you might be wondering, in any king's residence, we might expect to see a throne of some sort, right? Like a place where he sits and makes his will known for the people. And at first glance, if you're looking at chapters 26 and 27, it doesn't seem like there's any throne mentioned in these chapters. So how could this tent be used to symbolize that God is Israel's king? But if we dip back into last week's chapter, chapter 25, we see that there is a throne in the tabernacle, and it is the Ark of the Covenant. It is the Ark of the Covenant. No wonder Indiana Jones wanted to find it so badly. He's like, king sat there. But let's look a little bit closer at what this throne of God looked like. And as we do, we notice that a lot of what we might assume a king's throne would look at. So, for example, its pieces are overlaid or made of pure gold. We see that in chapter 25, verse 11 to 14, and 17 and 18. And on the very top of this ark is what is called the mercy seat. It's also made of gold, chapter 26, verse 34. It's made out of gold. In fact, it was a solid golden slab that fit perfectly on top of the ark. And upon this golden mercy seat sat two golden cherubim, chapter 25, 18 to 20. Angels, which we last saw when they were angels guarding the entrance to the Garden of Eden so that Adam and Eve could not get back into it. Remember that? So, so because of God's judgment on them, they weren't allowed back in. And these cherubim are found on the throne of God, and they're hammered out of the same piece of gold, and they had wings that actually stretched out towards the mercy seat and faces that looked downward in reverent awe, so they wouldn't look up to God, but instead looked downward. And it was here from between the cherubim where God made his will known. We see that in Exodus chapter 25, verse 22. And it's for this reason that the Lord is sometimes referred to in the Old Testament as being enthroned upon the cherubim, right? This kingly language and how the ark is his throne from which he rules. So look at a few of them with me. Psalm chapter 80, verses 1 and 2. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You are enthroned upon the cherubim. Shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come and save us. 
This is kingly language. You're the one who leads us like a flock. So a king leads his people, enthroned on the cherubim. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4a. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And then Isaiah chapter 37, verses 15 to 17. Hezekiah praised the Lord, the Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim. You are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. Of all the kingdoms of the earth. He's ruling over them as their king. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear the words of Sennacherib, which he sent to mock the living God. See, all this leads us to conclude that God has a throne in this tabernacle where he makes himself known to his representative, Moses. But not not only that, but the box itself, the ark, contained special items inside of it, including the covenant that God made with Israel, that oath-bound relationship that they have together. Then we see that in chapter 25, verse 16. And it is from this throne room where God will meet and speak with Moses, chapter 25, verse 22. Thus, from God's throne... In his tabernacle, he will dwell with his people and lead them. That's T. Desmond Alexander. If you have not read his book, From Eden to the New Jerusalem, uh, it would be a helpful book uh, in understanding how all these things work together. And so God does both of these things. From his throne, in his tabernacle, he dwells with people and he leads them. These things are connected. So this rectangular box, this Ark of the Covenant, function in the life of Israel like the footstool of the throne of God on earth extending to the heavenly throne uh, as, as kind of a foretaste of the promises of God that there was coming a day when his kingdom would come crashing down upon the earth and all sickness and sadness and brokenness would forevermore be banished and every injustice would be rectified. Thus it's here at the center of Israel's camp where the divine king's feet touch the earth in the midst of his people. Again, a physical reminder of God's presence with his people as their king, leading and protecting them as he dwelt in their midst. So the placement of the tent smack dab in the middle of the camp. The items found within the tent are all meant to demonstrate also that God is the true king of Israel. That's my big first point. The second one I want us to see is how the items and the placement. So we went, uh, we went uh, the placement to the items. Now we're going to go items to the placement are also meant to demonstrate the holiness of God. They're meant to demonstrate the holiness of God, that God is holy the king who is holy in their midst. And by holiness, of course, we're talking about purity. Right, we're talking about, so I mean, we, we use the word holy when we see it in the Bible. We're talking about purity or the rightness, the unstained and flawless perfection of God's character and nature. We mean by this word a host of things. And by talking about the holiness of God, we are reminded that God is morally and judiciously and ethically flawless. He is unstained by sin or rebellion and decay. He is pure and clean, and God lives for his glory and honor. There is no one like him. He is the creator of everything that exists. Everything depends on him for its continuance and its subsistence, just to live. And the holiness of God is one of the most important things that we, that we see uh, found in, uh, in the Bible about the character and nature of God. It is this that the angels in heaven in the book of Revelation are saying over and over and over again. Remember? Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. We might, we might miss this whole concept of holiness. Like you might have... Like if, like if you read chapter 25 to 27, you walked in today, and you're like, bro, I read that, and holiness was not something I saw. It's meant to show us the holiness of God in the midst of his people. You might be like, I, I don't think I saw that. 
And so it's true. We, we can miss the forest for the trees. We might get so bogged down in reading these verses, we overlook the holiness of God, and yet it is there to be seen. For example, the beginning of this section, if you want to look with me in Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, we see that the holiness of God is a primary concern in building the tabernacle from the beginning. It's a verse that we highlighted last week, but it's, it's really important to see it again. So let's look at this verse together. God says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Now, you might be wondering, all right, so where is holiness in this verse? You just said, it's right there. I'm looking at the verse, bro. I don't see it. But here, actually, in this word sanctuary, you know, circle that as we come to this. The root word of the word sanctuary means to be holy. And the noun here means a place where holiness is. So let them make me a place where my holiness may dwell, that I may dwell in their midst. Does that make sense? Let them make me a sanctuary, a place where my holiness is, so that, intentions, so that I may dwell in their midst. So, so the tabernacle is a sanctuary. It is a place where the holiness of God is meant to dwell among God's people in a unique and a particular way. So the tabernacle is, is uh, the place where the Lord, in his holiness, the full reality of the glory of his holy nature, would come and settle among his people. So the word sanctuary is our indicator that the holiness of God is being put on display in the building of tent. Not only that, but do you also notice in reading through these chapters what the two rooms of the tabernacle are called? Yeah, let's look at it. And you shall hang the veil from the clasp and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate you for you the holy place from the most holy place. You shall put the mercy seat of the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. So the rooms themselves tell you their intention, right? If I tell you that's the washroom, it's the washroom. That's, that's, it tells you the intention of what you do in that room, right? Uh, or if you're American, the bathroom, the restroom, uh, whatever you want to call it, you know what that room is. I go to your house and I say, where is the washroom? You don't send me your bedroom. Or you don't send me like a random closet or down to like where you wash your clothes. That's not where you said, no, you, you, you sent me to the washroom. Likewise, here, we can't even talk about the rooms that God is saying without thinking about the holiness of God, and it's in the vocabulary itself. Isn't that interesting? And this will just keep coming up in the book of Exodus, this concept of holiness and the names of these places, so that holiness is part of what it means to be the people of God and is the intention behind this place. So God is holy, this place will be holy, the people themselves ought to be holy as well. Thus, the entire scene that is being painted, describing God's presence with his people and his kingly rule in their midst, is also demonstrating that it's God's holy presence coming to dwell in the midst of his people, making them, as we talked about in Exodus chapter 19, a holy people. They can be a holy people because a holy God dwells in their midst and he makes them holy. So they are to be God's set-apart people as they obey God's voice and keep his covenant. We also see the holiness of God throughout the, book, uh, throughout the whole book of Exodus as well. If you remember in our first uh, section, chapters 1 to 18, uh, we, we saw that it was the ground around the burning bush that became holy by the very presence of God. Right? So Moses would take off his sandals because the ground was made holy 
by the presence of God. Then in our second section, chapters 19 to 24, God's holiness is seen on the mountain, Mount Sinai. And it was made holy so that it needed to be roped off. Remember, so the Israelites didn't break through and come up onto the mountain. Let's the holiness of God break out against them and kill them because they are unholy and the Lord is holy. So too here in the third section, we see the tabernacle. The tabernacle of God is holy. And through the sacrifices that are made here, acting in covenant faithfulness, God's people remain to be his holy people. So holiness is a thread that just runs throughout this entire book. And it's a constant reminder of who God is and what it means to be God's people. And the interesting thing that we notice in the tabernacle is that the further that we move away from the Holy of Holies, the less holy the place became, right? We have the most holy place, then the holy place. Now, the most holy place You're right. It's the most holy place. Like, I'm public school educated, but I know that that's more than the other one. You know what I mean? The most holy, the holy. Which one's more holy? The most. Like, if that's multiple choice, I'm passing that test. You know what I mean? And, and then so in this, this is what we see. There, there's, there's that, the holy, most holy place, the holy place in the core of the tabernacle, surrounding the holy places. And then chapter 25 to 27, as we learned last week, we can easily read about the items themselves. Remember, as Matt said, you move from gold to bronze to more common materials. It's signifying the holiness of God's progression that we see as well. So it goes from gold to more common materials. And we also note that there are levels of holiness reflected both in the objects, the people, the clothing, and the accessibility that is associated with each part of the tabernacle. So the tabernacle, this huge tent in the center of their camp is this constant object lesson demonstrating the sheer holiness of God, the cleanness, the spotless perfection of God. And this is the God who dwells in their midst, their king, the Holy One of Israel. And this whole scene is just screaming at us. God is holy. And what we would see if we just kept studying uh, what happened throughout the better part of this year at Mount Sinai, especially if we then read through the book of Leviticus, is that when the holiness of God comes into contact with anything unclean, what happens? Death. The holiness of God comes into contact with anything unclean, that thing dies. Therefore, the camp of Israel must be clean. They must be holy. Or what? The judgment of God is going to bubble out over them and kill large portions of them, which is exactly what we see happen because God cannot dwell in the midst of uncleanness. So the concept of God's holiness and the necessity of God's people living in lives of holiness will just keep coming up over and over and over again as they learn to become who they are as a people. And one of the places where we're reminded of the judgment of God is found in the midst of the tabernacle, specifically in the veil that is made that separates the holy place from the most holy place. So look with me in chapter 26, verse 31. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. As we mentioned a moment ago, the cherubim are the angels that uh, are guarding the Garden of Eden from Genesis chapter 3. So they're guarding the entrance specifically because Adam and Eve sinned against God, made themselves unclean. So can they remain in the garden? Nope. They have to leave. So cherubim are set up to guard the way. So if they try to come back, what's going to happen? They're going to die. So you don't go that way. Like You see the cherubim? 
you go the other way. You run away. Lest you, unclean person, you will die. And here are the cherubim again. And yet, what are they doing? Guarding, as it were, the holy of holies. If you walk in, you're like, oh, cherubim. Oh, never mind. Never mind. I, I, oh, oh. I'm going to knock something over. Uh, I didn't know that was back there. Sorry, that scared me. Uh, that scared me. I didn't know that was there. Uh, <clears throat> so, so you, that would happen to you. You'd, see, you'd freak out. You'd run away. Uh, that, that's, that's, what, that's what would happen. And so, uh, <clears throat> sorry. So we talked about that's, that is really important, that, that someone would enter in. Uh, God's judgment would break out against them if they saw even the very cherubim as they're trying to defile the throne room of God. So just as we talked about a moment ago, about how the placement of the tabernacle shows us that, that God is Israel's king, so also the very placement of God, of the tabernacle, is meant to demonstrate the holiness of God and how God intends for his people to be holy in order to be in his presence. So I'm going to see if this works. Yes, it did. All right, look at me this picture of the camp of Israel. Uh, as you'll notice, it's a bit different than the last photo that you saw because you didn't see a photo. Uh, this photo helps us to understand the holiness of God that is actually at the center of the camp. See, see holy of holies, the holy place, uh, the high priest only in there, the priests are only in there, and I'll, I'll get to the rest of it in, in a minute. But as you'll notice, um, it helps us really understand that God and the holiness of God is the very center of the camp. But also visually, it helps us see degrees of holiness that surround Yahweh's tent. Right? So the closer you get to Yahweh, the more sacred the space becomes. For example, with the most holy place, this is where God dwells, remember we said, in a unique and particular way among his people, in his sanctuary. His holiness resides there in a special, unique way. And besides Moses... Only the high priest can enter into the most holy place. And only once a year is the high priest able to do that. Now, outside of that is the holy place. And there is where the priests are allowed to enter. Nobody else. And we'll talk about them next week when we get to chapter 28. So the common Israelites are not allowed into this place. Only the priests. And outside of the tabernacle, we see this is the court. So everyone is allowed into the court itself. Uh, if you go through uh, the way uh, in, which is by sacrifice and by the basin of water so that you're cleansing yourself. And then outside of the tabernacle to the east, can you read that? Who comes first after the priest? It's kind of sideways. Mm, it's Moses and Aaron. So I mean right there. So Moses and Aaron, their tents were actually set up right there. They camped right in front of it, guarding the entrance to the sanctuary and serving as a means by which to protection for the people. So all unauthorized people who were to draw near, somehow if they made it past the Levites and they made it to Moses and Aaron, Numbers chapter 3 verse 38 says that any of those people that even get to that point should be killed, put to death. So this is serious business. The holiness of God is a serious and a weighty matter when we're walking in Scripture. And thus, and then encamped around the tabernacle are a whole bunch of Levites. You see them? See how they're all around it? And the reason why they are all around it is they are the tribe that's been chosen by God to perform the priestly duties. And so they act as a buffer for the rest of the people so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. So if God, so they, they help buffer it is what Numbers chapter 1 verse 53 says. And then the 12 tribes of Israel are then encamped around the tabernacle, Numbers chapter 2 verses 1 to 31. And finally, outside of the camp is the unclean realm of the dead unclean realm of the dead all the way around it. So there is a clear distinction between what is holy, specifically the tribes, and what is 
unholy, the unclean realm of the dead, and then everyone else that is clean before God. And so what we have seen throughout the last few chapters in the covenant that God makes with Israel is that Israel will remain his holy people, experiencing covenantal blessings as they, by faith, obey God's voice and keep his covenant. And as they do, Israel will remain clean before God as God's holy people who don't sully themselves with unclean behaviors, but rather are committed to following God's laws and serving him. And as they do, they get to remain in the camp, close to the holy presence of God and enjoying the sweet community of God's people in perfect harmony to God's commands. But what if they didn't obey God's voice? What if they did not keep his covenant? And how did they become unclean. If you read the book of Leviticus recently, you'll notice how often just the word unclean and clean and unclean and clean and unclean and clean. And you're like, bro, I get it. Some things are dirty. Some things aren't. I don't, I don't know, man. And this is what it's getting at. This is what the entire book of Leviticus is getting at. What if you don't obey God's voice and keep his covenant? How did you become unclean? And then how did God make a way for you then to become clean again? So Jim Hamilton, uh, one of my old uh, professors, he explains it like this. There are two ways to become unclean. The first is that if the Israelite came into contact with the dead, and the second is if they become unclean by their own transgression. This is how you become unclean. This is, this is what kicks you out of the camp. Contact with the dead and transgression. So firstly, the Israelites leave the camp, leave their family, leave their friends and their community, and enjoying all of the good presence of God if they have contact with the dead. Now, this uh, includes contact with blood, other kinds of bodily discharges, as the book of Leviticus points out. So for example, lepers. Lepers are always unclean because they are constantly exposed to deadness in their flesh. So they're unclean. They cannot come into the camp lest they also make everyone else get leprosy. So uh, first is that way. Second is transgressions that are either intentional or unintentional. Leviticus 4.2, Numbers 15, 27 to 31. Now, the fact that a transgression is deliberately chosen or even premeditated is not what makes it necessarily intentional or high-handed. No, rather, High-handed sin is unrepentant sin. See, sin is intentional when the sinner refuses to repent of the sin and offer the prescribed sacrifices. This is what we see in Psalm 713. So it's not that you sinned. It's that you refuse to repent of your sin and offer the sacrifices necessary to atone for your sin. That's how your transgressions makes you unclean because by your refusal to repent and offer sacrifices, you are in effect throwing off the covenant. You are saying, I'm not obeying God's voice. I'm not obeying God's covenant. I don't care. So you are throwing it off yourself. Your transgression, therefore, makes you unclean. You cannot be in the camp because the camp is clean. You can't be with your wife, your kids, your family, your friends, no one. Nor can you enter into the holy presence of God. So you have no clean relationships. You're outside of the camp. So he or she does not believe, therefore, the claims of the Bible, the claims of God. Namely, that God dwells in the middle of his people, that he is holy, and that he will punish transgression. See, the sinner does not fear God 
because the sinner does not believe what the Bible says about God, and they refuse to submit to him. Thus, they must leave the light of the camp and go into the darkness outside of the camp. So their sin means they lose communion with God and with God's people. But if they would repent and offer sacrifice, they could come back and be restored with God and God's people. If they would repent and offer sacrifice, they could come back and be restored with God and God's people. Thus, again, as Jim Hamilton goes on to say, there is one way to be cleansed and and thereby re-enter the camp without danger, and it's sacrifice. This is why, by the way, when one has been cleansed from any contact with the dead or seeping sore in the book of Leviticus, where do they first come? To the Levites. When they're, so if we follow our little thing, sorry, my friends, I'm over here, but you can follow along over there. So two ways to become unclean, transgression and contact with the dead will send you out. The only way back in is sacrifice. You first come to the Levites. Always, you first come to the Levites. And you first come to them because they are the ones that God has set up as the mediators. They, they pronounce as clean from whatever kind of sickness or death you might have been in contact with. So if you have leprosy and then you wake up one day and you don't have leprosy anymore, you go to the Levites and you say, I, I, I don't know what happened. Uh, I'm clean. And they look at you and they assess you for seven days. And after that, they say, I guess you are clean. Y'all, yesterday, this is a side, this is a side note. I had, we got 18 chicks on Friday. One of them, I thought, died yesterday. So I got it, and I just put it out somewhere. I was like, some hawk will come eat it. It's the circle of life. And, uh, and then that little thing popped up and started walking around. And I was like, he's alive. So then he got to, I don't know what happened. I don't know if God resurrected him from the dead. I don't, I don't know. I thought he was dead. He was, so he, he got to reenter uh, the, the coop with all of his other buddies. Uh, he was dead, and he was alive. Uh, and I was like, there's a sermon illustration somewhere in there. And, and here it is. Uh, here it is. And so, so that's what would happen. So if you, you were unclean, but then you woke up, oh, I'm clean. Oh, I'm alive. Uh, you would go to Levites, uh, and then they would clear you to enter the tabernacle. Then you would enter into the court of the tabernacle, offer sacrifices before the Lord, and then proceed to the bronze basin and ceremonially wash yourself. So that's how you'd be cleansed, for example, from touching the dead or from leprosy or discharges or other things. But if you had become unclean by transgression, by sin, and sent outside of the camp, but upon experiencing discipline and having become convicted of your sin by seeing the consequences of it as you're disconnected from God and God's people because of your unholiness. So so if you want to stop throwing off the covenant and be restored both to God and to God's people, you would come and present necessary sacrifices, demonstrating a heart that admits that it is sinful, but now wants to joyfully submit to God and obey his voice. Thus, the only way for those who have become unclean by their transgressions, the things they do, the sins of their life, the only way to be restored to God and to others is that you have to come and to admit your sin, your uncleanness, and submit to God's prescribed sacrifices by faith that the blood of the animal, the death of the animal, the sacrifice, would stand condemned in your place, facing the punishment, the wrath, the judgment of God that you deserve because of your sin. So it in the place of you, one in the place of another. And then having offered the sacrifice by faith, you could then wash clean and enter into joyful communion with God and with God's people once again by faith. Side note. 
isn't it interesting that this is the exact same pattern we see in the New Testament with church discipline? And isn't it wonderful that this is the exact same desire? That when we sin, we are to see our sinfulness and the consequences of broken communion with God and with one another, repent of our sin, believe upon the finished work of Jesus, and then we are brought back in. This is a whole system that we see set up in Exodus, teased out in Leviticus, and a thing that we see even in the New Testament. But all of this only works, all of this only works if the worshiper believes that God is in the midst of his people. If you believe that God is holy, if you believe that sacrifice must be offered for cleansing, and if you live in a way that corresponds with these beliefs. See, most people might read the book of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They might come away with it saying, well, that's just a a works-based relationship with God. Oh, but if you understand what's actually happening, you see, no way, man. This is a faith that they have. This is not a salvation of works, but a salvation of faith in God's prescribed means of cleansing. And God's holiness is at the center of the entire camp to demonstrate he is holy. And if Israel would become who they would be, who they ought to be as his people, they must live holy lives that are faithful to the covenant and obey his voice. It's interesting, isn't it? Looking at that picture and seeing the holiness of God and and the things that make the Israelites unclean and then the means by which they can be clean and forgiven through the sacrifice of another so so that they might then be washed and clean and approach God and once again enjoy the sweet fellowship of God's people. Looking at all these things, doesn't it just innately remind us of the pattern that we see all the way throughout God's word? Firstly, how we enter into relationship with God and then throughout our lives as we experience various sins in our lives, how we then repent and come back and believe the gospel all over again. See, I, I tipped my hand a moment ago in telling you about church discipline, but outside of church discipline, don't you see your own story when you consider the holiness of God when you see these words? Like I do, and we ought to. See, because zooming out and looking at the tapestry of God that is just painted throughout redemptive history, this is exactly what we see in the New Testament in answering the question of how do unclean, sinful people like you and I, how are we pardoned, forgiven, and restored before a holy God? Because what we see in the Bible is a resounding affirmation that God is holy. And we simultaneously read the terrifying news of the Bible that God has judgment against us because we are unholy. That all of us, from birth and by nature, are not those who love God and his word. None of us is naturally holy. Rather, we are those who rebel against him and his word. In fact, the Bible explains that all of us are those who want to be like God. We want to decide for ourselves what is right, what is wrong. We don't want God to determine what is sinful and what is not sinful. We don't want God to determine what is holy and what is unholy. We don't want a God who will judge us for our unholiness. Rather, naturally, we want a God who will celebrate our rebellion and our dirtiness. It's because we want to be God. Isn't that what we see all over social media? We want to dictate to God what is acceptable and pure and lovely and God needs to bend to what we think is right because my God would never be judgmental towards anyone ever. I'm like, have you read the Bible? This is the ultimate root of sin and that's my heart and it's your heart. Naturally, this is what we all are prone to think, but have we read God's word? 
It's because the root of sin, of unholiness and uncleanness, it just runs deep into the core of who we are. We want to be like God. I want to be like God. I don't want to submit to God. I want him to submit to me. And this is because, as the Bible teaches, our foolish hearts have been darkened. Our eyes have been blinded by Satan so that we cannot see the light of the glory of Christ. And yet it's even worse than that. Not only are we unclean before God, not only do we deserve to be out in the outer darkness, away from God's people and away from God, but we cannot make ourselves clean. Nor do we want to. But even if we did want to, the reality is that we couldn't. We could never be good enough. We could never follow enough rules. We could never be moral enough or religious enough to deserve his pardon and become his people because the Bible explains we are his enemies. We are rebels who only rebel against him. In fact, the Bible explains that all of us from birth and by nature are not neutral towards God. We are at war with him. In fact, we naturally worship the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself. We have a spirit inside of us from birth. It's not God the spirit. It's a spirit of disobedience. It makes us want to fight against God. And if we could, we would break through all of those ranks and try to kill the holy king of Israel. Every single one of us. And because of this, the Bible explains that we all deserve God's judgment. Firstly, we all deserve death. We all deserve to have our own blood come back on our heads. In fact, that's why we die, even still. But as Revelation 20 explains, we, we deserve after death to spend an eternity suffering in the lake of fire, suffering under the righteous wrath of God forever and ever. This is what our, this is what our rebellion and our uncleanliness deserve before a holy God. So that's where we are. We are outside of the camp in the unclean realm of the dead. This is where we are from birth. This is where we are by nature. We're dead in the trespasses and sins in our lives, unable to please God, unwilling to even try because we naturally hate the things of God and unwilling to submit to him. We, we want to make up our own God. We want to make up our own way to be declared innocent before him. It has nothing to do with trusting in the sacrifice of another in our place. Rather, we must try harder or be better or earn our way into acceptance by trying, trying really hard and obeying all of the rules. Yet we're unable to obey God's commands. So that all that we deserve is God's judgment. But here's the good news. The good news is that God is gracious and kind towards us as his enemies. And he's made a way for us who are guilty, who deserve judgment, to be declared innocent. He has a way for him to draw near to us. And it's not where we die, but rather where we live. That God's plan from before time began was that although we would rebel against him and deserve his judgment, God the Son, the King of Israel, the Holy One, would lay humanity alongside of his divinity and tabernacle with us. That Jesus would put on flesh and bone, pitch his tent. The holy God who created the universe would enter into human history and his deity would be veiled lest we would see it and perish because we are unclean. And yet he, fully man and fully God, lived a perfect life, a holy life. Unlike us, Jesus never rebelled against God the Father's word and he kept the covenant He never lied, never gossiped, never coveted. He worshiped only the Lord. He kept all the law perfectly for his entire life. He was spotless, unstained by sin, and holy. He's the only one of us that deserves to go all the way into the holy of holies, who can pass through the cherubim because he has no sin at all in his life. 
And throughout his life, he demonstrated that he was God in the flesh by the words that he preached and by the miracles he performed. But he did not come primarily to be a good prophet or teacher or healer, but to fulfill what was lacking in our place. See, we, we are those outside the camp. We are those who are, who are angry against God, unwilling to offer the sacrifices necessary to come into the kingdom of God again. We would not come and offer sacrifices, nor would we live under his righteous covenant and rules. And so Jesus performed both of these for us. He lived the life we ought to have lived in perfect obedience. And then instead of sacrificing a lamb or an ox, he, God the Son, laid down his own life, becoming the true and better lamb of God who takes away our sin. Because on him was placed the wrath, the judgment of God the Father against us. Him in our place. His death instead of ours. Him facing God the Father's wrath so that we might not. And he did all of these things for us. Not only that, but isn't it interesting that he was led outside the camp for his crucifixion? The Holy One of God, God in the flesh, was led outside of camp to be crucified, to the outer darkness where only transgressors and those who are dirty and unclean ought to go away from the Holy of Holies, away from the sweet communion of God's people. And the God of life was slain by death. Jesus, the Holy One of Israel, who ought to have been praised and welcomed and celebrated and worshiped by God's people, was rejected by them, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God the Father, so that through his death, through his sacrifice, through him standing condemned in our place, we who are guilty might have a way that we can be declared innocent and righteous before God once and for all, so that we might actually be able to approach the throne of God. God and receive mercy and pardon and be cleansed as his people, his righteous people, his holy nation. He came into our world and we did not die, yet he died that we might have life. But it wouldn't be by our own faithfulness, but only as we come before God covered in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. So don't miss this because the whole Bible points to this in its fulfillment. Jesus, the King of kings, the Holy One, he did all of this so that we who are outside of the camp because of our sin might have a way to be declared innocent and pure and holy before God the Father. But it's not by sacrificing. It's not by being moral or religious. Rather, we can be declared innocent before God today, similarly to how the, the Israelites of old were declared innocent before God when they realized they were transgressors of the covenant. Firstly, admitting to God that you're a sinner. And believing that Jesus stood condemned in our place. And that three days later, he rose from the dead, conquering over sin and offering us forgiveness and pardon and cleansing if we would come to him by faith. And that's the call for you today if you're not a Christian. It's first to see the consequences of your own sin. Because before God, they are serious. See, judgment now and then eternal judgment is on the line because of your sin, your rebellion. But God has made a way for you to be saved. As you admit your sin and you believe in Jesus' death in your place and that he rose bodily from the dead, and then you would repent from your sin. You turn away from it and you come to Jesus. And in the same way that you would repent from any sin in your life, adultery, gossiping, slander, drunkenness, fornication, whatever it is for you in your life, all of these things for you in your life, this is what it means. Turn away from those things, admitting your sin, believing upon his sacrifice, and turning away from that, saying, I don't want to be that person anymore. Instead, I want to follow after Jesus. And that is how we are saved from the consequences of our sin. So today, do you believe that you are a sinner? 
Do you want to be cleansed? There's a way for you. You can come before you, the true and better high priest, Jesus, and you can trust in his death in your place, and you can come and have communion with God and his people. And if you are a Christian, what a great reminder that we have from God's word to rejoice in our salvation, right? To be reminded that we were once those who were unclean. We were those in the outer darkness. And yet Jesus has transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his glorious light. God gave us by his spirit minds to comprehend the gospel when we did not want to. Eyes to see the light of the glory of Christ when we did not want to and wanted to remain blind. He gave us a new heart in the place of a heart of stone. He gave us new desires to want to please God and to obey his voice and to keep his covenant. And not only that, he gave us his spirit, which actually helps us do it. Because we cannot obey his commands on our own. We are incompetent. And yet by his spirit, we are able to do that which we could not do beforehand. So that he gets all the praise, honor, and glory for our salvation and our continuance in the gospel. So as once we are not a people... Once we are not God's people, now we are his holy nation, his priesthood, his people. Whereas once we were unable to do what God demanded, now we are able by faith. Now by the empowerment of the spirit who resides in us, we are able to live lives that please God. Brother and sister, what joy there is in being God's people. Not only that, but what joy there also is in continuing to live lives of constant repentance. This is why all of the Christian life is one of repentance. Because we enter into the family of God by faith and the finished sacrifice of Christ. And we're convicted of our sin. We repent of our sin, trusting in the finished work of Christ so that we might continue to have communion with God and with his people. See, this is our whole lives, ones of repentance. So that we demonstrate throughout our whole lives that we belong to God by faith in Jesus. And so we don't persist in unrepentant sin, but when confronted, we repent, we turn away from it, and we pursue holiness. Church, that is how we become who we are and demonstrate that we also are God's people, his holy people. So today we can have this confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. So let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let's pray. Oh, 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 oh,